Okay, you're gonna be the holder. I'll, I'll hold her the dead cat. Because that's I a can terrible hear. word. Yeah, she yeah. can hear the loop. I'm okay. not gonna hold dead cat. I'm not holding the dead cat, though. Listen. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. <laughs> so, welcome to another episode of PH Divas. This is Zain Yao. And this is Liz Wayne. And we are live on location in uh, together, t- together again at last, <laughs> in New York City, specifically yes. at the offices of BuzzFeed, to interview uh, a friend of mine from Cornell, Meredith Toulousen. Yay! Yay! <laughs> Hi, I'm here. <laughs> so, yeah, um, so before this started, we were super excited. And I think I've actually been excited since you mentioned it. Um, I, I feel like sometimes I might even be overexcited because I'm like, oh my god, we get to go here. This is so awesome. I finally get to meet Meredith in person so she won't think I'm a stalker anymore. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's just so exciting. Um, very interesting person, exciting, and like a little role model. Not a little, okay. not like little, yeah. But maybe we should role model. some backstory. Yeah. So for those of you, I'm sure that most of our listeners know what BuzzFeed is. Um, Meredith, for the past how long now? Uh, about a year. About yeah. a year has a, um, been one of the LGBT feature writers and editors at I'm at a, an LGBT staff writer. Staff yeah. writer mm-hmm. at BuzzFeed. Uh, but before that, she was doing her PhD in comparative literature at Cornell, which is how I got to know her. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's been really fascinating as a friend and then as like an admirer of her work to see how she's navigated both academia um, as a very... Um, outspoken, intelligent um, Filipina, and then uh, coming out publicly as as trans, and then in some ways becoming like a professional trans trans woman with that right yeah i feel like because that's how you described it in some senses and all the things that entails and yeah. does not entail right right and maintaining you know like maintaining all of my other identities along the way yeah. and sort of and um yeah and all of that yeah yeah and i guess to give a little bit of background um for those of you who don't know, I wrote a, a blog post for the Modern Language Association uh, Committee for, on the Status of Graduate Students, the profession, and precisely about like doing alt-ack work or doing side hustles and gra- how the way that the neoliberal university sort of pushes us as graduate students to explore other avenues of expression and professionalization. And I sort of think of Meredith informally as being part of what I think of as like the Cornell culture critics, which is that there's a number of actually um, Cornell graduate students in the humanities who've gone on like Meredith to work for, uh, to write for major publications. So Meredith Mm -hmm. has been also for like The Guardian, for example. We have a number of other friends like uh, Dexter Thomas, who's one of the, uh, our initial producer actually is now part of the, Pulitzer Prize winning team um, at the LA Times. Daniel Pena writes for The Guardian and for Huffington Post as well about Mexican um, issues. Uh, Jacob Brogan, who is in English and was my mentor at the beginning of the program, now writes for Slate, um, I think under their future tense right. column. Mm-hmm. Uh, at least those are the few, uh, there's a lot of other people who write other things um, for like Jacobin and Dissent and other uh, outlets. And, and the, we sort of see like the sort of growth of I think this type of alt act writing that's related shows how humanities training and perhaps critical theory training, which is often lambasted for being incredibly obscure, actually helps to train certain um, modes of thinking and writing for a wider, wider audience. And so I think it's one of the many things we'd like to talk to Meredith about today. Yeah, I mean, I think that makes a real sense, and I think the decentralized nature of Cornell as an institution really aids that process you know like I feel like I feel like I feel like there had like it's not a coincidence that a lot of people come out of Cornell to do um this type of writing because they think 
I think that, you know, this sort of like one person, any study model, oh. right? <laughs> you know, this sort of, this sort of the ways in which um, the Cornell programs, at least certainly my comparative literature program, mm -hmm. um, encourages, you know, certainly encouraged me to experiment with forms, you know, like I had a very, um, a very uh, supportive advisor. Mm -hmm. um, and so that sort of allowed me to make my way through around, you know, kind of like different types of rhetoric and different ways of writing and different forms of writing. And so it wasn't a big leap for me to then be like, oh, okay, like I want to write about trans issues mm -hmm. now. And um, I have written, you know, like in a lot of ways, my columns for The Guardian have a lot in common with my response papers in school mm -hmm. and I feel like the response paper form in another I went to Harvard for undergrad like in another at Harvard for instance as an institution would be much more well maybe not much more but certainly more rigid than it was during my you know during the classes that I took at Cornell and that really helped me in terms of transferring some of those skills to um, to a general audience or to a general public readership. Yeah, so. that's really interesting because I, I have a lot of questions for you. I mean, one thing I was thinking about was you said that a lot of your response papers that you were actually doing during your PhD um, or during your studies were similar to the pieces you wrote right. that were not being read by faculty and other right. people. And so how translatable was that? I mean, did you have to change it, like the tone or maybe the... Like, what did you actually have to change to make this where, like, I don't know, another viewer might listen to this who may not read it, may, who wasn't in academia? I think I think the important thing to talk about, first of all, is is the things that I maintained mm -hmm. through that form. The one, the th the two things that I was able to do because I had so much experience writing mm -hmm. graduate school response papers was number one, I could anticipate like the first four or five arguments that would come out of a particular issue, right? Mm -hmm. like, something would happen. What are the four or five most obvious things that okay. will be said about this issue? And then, and then I would hone in on like a something that's important to me, but also b like something that you know, an aspect of the issue that is under-examined or counterintuitive or unexpected. And that would be the thing that I would focus on. You know, that's a very graduate student skill. Mm. And the second thing is that I w I'm able to turn these things around really fast because I have a lot of practice with, <laughs> you know, like taking four or five graduate <laughs> seminars and having to do them, you know, like having to like do 200 pages of reading and then, you know, and then mm -hmm. produce a response paper. Um, I think the thing that the things that are different are definitely that um, for a general readership, it it takes time to you can't you don't have the same kind of academic shorthand, right? Like you uh, have to unpack terms or mm -hmm, not mm -hmm. use not use terms, but use the ideas behind the terms, mm -hmm. um, and you know so that's one you know that's one thing that I had to really learn. You know like I couldn't. Um, I couldn't use problematize in the same yeah. way or hegemony or, you know, like all <laughs> always of these, already, <laughs> always, you know, all of these terms, my, my sentences couldn't be as compound as, you know, mm -hmm. as they used to be. Um, but otherwise, otherwise the, the, the ways in which those, especially kind of like short opinion pieces, 
um, the way that I personally have structured them has been very similar to my response papers. There's usually like a core idea, right? That like our acceptance of Caitlyn Jenner shouldn't be predicated on her physical appearance, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? Or, you know, yeah, like that, you know, just something, something that I would observe that people aren't saying. And then you would have to guess because usually when something happens, there will be like 20 of 20 opinion pieces Mm -hmm. and so Mm -hmm. you have to be the person who stands out and and is the person who people will see oh like I didn't think of it that way like that's a really you know fascinating way to look at it yeah I remember I really enjoyed your piece on Caitlyn Jenner in particular because like as you said you sort of anticipated what the majority of the arguments would be and like all the things that like we have to like you're obligated, we're obligated to defend Caitlyn Jenner because these things are particularly like misogynistic or transmisogynistic in particular. But then there's still these problems, and how does one reconcile those different right. things? And I think that that piece did a really great balancing of, of those elements. Yeah, or the thing of like you know, like when the Vanity Fair cover came out, mm-hmm. it was just like every, you know, mm-hmm. like it was like there were at least I don't know like 15 pieces that were just like this is just like the most wonderful thing, and it's just like so great, and <laughs> yeah. it's so pretty, and it's so beautiful, and it's just like. Um, and so it was really important to just be like, yeah, like I feel that way too, you know, mm-hmm. but then, you know, but then what is, you know, like what's under that and, you know, and what can I bring to the table that other people haven't really articulated? As yeah. an interdisciplinary comparison, I think this is interesting because I've had to write my science for general audiences mm-hmm. and I don't, I've never really felt like there was a core, there was no transferabilities. Like you have to, strip it down and strip it down and strip it down and then um so as an example for my thesis work okay my result was that 90 percent after giving this drug 90 percent of the cancer cells i injected into the into the mouse were killed after two hours right okay that is my like scientific finding but then what the news people wanted to stay was that drug kills all cancer cells metastasis cured more or less like so it was like these big leaps and bounds like I didn't say that I didn't want to say that I wanted to say this little thing right but the translatable part they wanted to make it some overarching sure. broad sticky balls cure cancer yeah and it was very hard for me to try to figure out I think I had to change my tactic from not trying to actually explain my research but trying to um maybe I guess maybe it was trying to look at one little thing right. but not even my result it was like it was more of at the end, I had to think, how do I communicate this in a way that they don't have to change my words? Right. Right. Can, in order to make it. Because what's going to happen is one news outlet picks it up, and then there's going to be hundreds, well, depending on how good the results right. are, but mul- multiple people want to pick it up. And so that was really interesting for me to try to think, you can't get everything. And also, it's not always going to be exactly explicitly what you said. So it's okay if they don't get the percentages Right. Right. Um, it is not okay if they don't get the percentages right. I know, but our science desk would, you know, like I would, intru- I would, I'll introduce. I, I don't think she's here, but our science desk is very, very. Uh, I'm very active on our science Slack. I don't mm-hmm. know if you're familiar with, um, and and we're pretty sensitive to that sort of mm-hmm. stuff, and you know, kind of like responsible. Yeah, but it's, reporting it's interesting science. because again, do I try to talk to the reporter as? as if they know exactly what I'm talking about or do I try to change my language before I talk to the reporter because the reporter is going to try to translate that. Right. And I need to think, what are they thinking about? What's important to them? And that's not necessarily 
what's the most important part to me. Yeah. Yeah. Or they don't necessarily want to hear about all the problems. They want to hear. And it was just, anyway, it was an interesting translation. And I'm not sure it was exactly uh, what are the points of, that I need to bring across and how do I write that concisely. Right, right. Also, I'm not writing it. No one ever wants a scientist to write, a, to write up their paper and then they're going to publish it, really. Right, right. And you have to... I mean, I think similar issues exist yeah. for... Yeah, I mean, especially when you're talking about... Um, when you're talking about, like, more challenging simple assumptions about trans issues mm-hmm. right you know so i've been working a lot recently on this sort of um you know uh trapped inside your body model mm-hmm. of trans and sort of and questioning that and yet at the same time being also like simultaneously really aware that that model has functionality in terms yeah. of securing yeah. rights for trans mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. And so what you what needs to happen is that there are certain contexts in which you can unpack and complicate all of those questions and other contexts in which it's important for you to assert the you know like a more simple argument in order in order to be able to secure rights for trans people mm-hmm. right and being really really sort of like sensitive to context is and i feel i feel so like post-structuralist deridian (laughs) you know like it's you know like i haven't really i haven't really sort of like fully thought through why i do that but it's partially that you know that like every sort of like context that you're in necessitates you know almost like micro rhetorics like micro Mm -hmm. ways of adjusting your language you know because yeah because also you know like how much space does their supporter have you know are they doing a feature piece on you your research or are they just doing like a quick hit Mm -hmm. thing and how do you you know like how do you frame your answers to be able to sort of like fit and and be able to sort of like get what you want to cross and like, I think is this something probably also alludes to how i think scientists sometimes want to say oh it we're not like our, our stuff is harder to explain, therefore, because it's harder to, ex- or I wouldn't even say harder because that's a comparison, but I think it's just, it's hard to explain, therefore, I shouldn't try to actually explain it. Right. You know, and therefore, you don't actually try to figure out what the core concept is, and maybe there are some similarities. Um, but that's oh. interesting on its own, Mary. Um, I was going to say that um, yeah? to what Meredith was saying earlier, I think it's so interesting and important that, like, there's so many, as you say, like, different multiple processes that are going on and but of course what the frustration is that of course being a person in media in general like I've seen you express this frustration like when you you do talk say about like uh, issues of how like um trans women of color in particular are affected by violence but then then people will latch on that as be the only thing that you talk about or like yeah. if you don't right. talk about it then like why aren't you t- talking about this but it's like such a balance it's such a game of playing like all these multiple mini rhetorics as you put it um at different times in different situations as much as advantageous as possible like there's moments i'm sure that where you're like okay this is where i can translate like a queer theorist like dean spade or right. munoz for for a wider audience but sometimes that's not the thing that you have to do in that moment right right Right. And also, you know, and also like the other thing is that the writer is always, you know, for better or for worse, especially the minority writer is always at the end point of this process. And you don't, you know, like I'm the only trans writer at BuzzFeed, you know, Mm -hmm. like which is the sort of, you know, which is a 
very supportive institution, but is still an institution with its own interests mm -hmm. and, you know, that can answer to other people, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think, I think that it's really important. It's been one of the ways in which my academic training has definitely helped me is to have a much more sort of a, a kind of like greater understanding mm -hmm. of the institutional structures yes. Yes. that undergird you know my work all of, you know the the sort of like social institutions that I'm balancing as I'm writing mm -hmm. you know so much Bourdieu <laughs> so much like you know like how you know how reception um you know factors into the way that I write and I think and yeah, and so I do think that I do think that I know for a fact that I can't just write on, um, you know, on trans-specific violence, both from the pers both from the perspective of like of me as a person, you know, like I can't spend. Other people might be able to do that, but I think I can't spend all of my time doing it. But also, you know, but also that 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 the community has needs beyond you know beyond reporting on trans violence and buzzfeed has needs beyond mm -hmm. you know beyond doing that reporting right so i do try to definitely um explore a range of issues but then what happens is you know is like a person i think it's kind of like the nature of internet writing mm -hmm. it's a little bit it's hard for people to like go and read everything that you write so basically what happens is like they read not even sometimes not even a subset of your work they read like one piece that you that you you've written that has gained attention and then all of a sudden it's just like oh no you're not accounting for this right mm -hmm. um and i think over time i you know i mean the only people who who really affect me these days are trans people you know like cis people i can you know, like I feel like I've satched, I've like so oversaturated. You know, because if I pay attention mm -hmm. to cis people's comments, there are literally thousands and thousands. Of, so <laughs> you like know, three like three archetypes, right? And so, and so, it's just like they they just don't affect me anymore. And I, but I think it's going to take a little while for me to adjust to, you know, because because I I care about the trans community and I can't help it and mm -hmm. I'm. Yeah, I'm human, and it, it's not even something that I want to apologize for. But yeah. it's it's kind of like a, you know, like it's it it's a feeling that I want to be able to name, and I want to be able to, you know, like in the context in this sort of like weird semi-private, semi-public context of social of Facebook social media, be able to articulate sometimes, right? Um, I'm sorry. Like you wanted me to, you wanted yeah. me to talk about like well, I, it was how much I care about trans people or like, <laughs> the trans community. Um, but, um, how some of the comments from trans people are affecting you, or right, and especially, um, you know, questions are never. This is such an academic question. You know, when that person in the audience, you give a great talk, the person in the audience at, raises their hand, and they say they have a question, but then they start off with like their monologue, right, right, and maybe even references their own work three times. I have right. no work here. I, I promise, there's a question. But um, so Zion knows you personally, and right. I've known you through Zion and also through Facebook, and right. I've been able to also follow your work and read things. And one of the things I, one of the posts I remember is you kind of talking about this kind of damned if I do, damned if I right. don't. Um, a lot of criticisms from trans people about right. whether you're 
uh, focusing on, on two on maybe where you're focusing isn't trans enough right. or not the right kind of trans issue right. or even your identity yourself right. being critiqued for those things. And I, know, I was wondering if you wanted to speak about that. Yeah, I mean, I think I think for me, part of the reason why it affects me is 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 in part because I understand it, you know, like in mm-hmm. part because, you know, because like trans people are systematically excluded from, you know, from so many public institutions, right? And so, and are systematically like not heard and often have, you know, like often have histories of, you know, kind of like rejection or marginalization, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, so for me, it's very difficult for me to, you know, like, when is this person, you know, like, attacks me online, I have no qualms and no compunctions about just, like, using all of my accumulated, <laughs> you know, sort of, like, knowledge to just kind of, like, yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and it's, and it's the thing is that, like, when somebody, right, like, when somebody goes after you on Twitter, you know, it's like, I'm a professional writer. Mm-hmm. I have made, you know, like, I've been good at the thing at this thing that I'm mm-hmm. doing for many many years, and so Don't come like, for me unless I send for you. <laughs> right? Um, and so, but I think, but I think when when it's a trans person, it's a lot harder for me to you know to do that just because just because like there's a degree of empathy, mm-hmm. but also like but also, you know like, at a certain level beyond myself, you know the criticisms are valid in the sense that like institutionally we should be talking about trans issues a lot more than we are there shouldn't just be me right Mm -hmm. so you know so I know that people aren't going after me as a person you know like they're going after me as a representation of a media institution that underrepresents and misrepresents trans people Mm -hmm. and I happen to be because I'm trans myself people see me as their closest point of access to mm-hmm. that, mm-hmm. you know, like world that they otherwise wouldn't have access to. Like they're gonna get they're gonna get ignored if they email whoever it is, like the you know, like the editor of the New York Times. And and they have been. I mean I've emailed yes. people and have been ignored. And so so I try not to take it personally, but it's hard. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, just because of the fact that, just because of the fact that it's hard not to feel it as unfair. And yet at the same time, I also, I also am deeply aware of my privilege, even within the trans community. Mm-hmm and am aware of the fact that like the option to sort of like you know to be able to sort of like have these types of feelings and have the means to like forget about them or put them away or have the support of people who I can talk to and have all of these means to be able to sort of like set the feelings aside is something that so many trans people and so many people who criticize me don't have right and mm-hmm. so yeah you know so it's just kind of like trying trying to at the same time like acknowledge those feelings and yet it and yet also know how do you deal with being in that, the middle of, i mean and this that's almost what the issue is how do you deal with right. being in the middle of um 
you are a trans writer. Right. And you are someone who the establishment has it, okay, you're trans, we know that, and we still want you to write about trans work. So that's a success in some way, but there's so many other trans people still struggling that it's like that there's this other comparison. So you're being compared on both sides, not just on the one side. I mean, I think... And and it's being done publicly. Right. And I kind of feel like, you know, I try as much as I can to even within the trans community, have friends across, you know, kind of like the the gamut of trans experience. I mean, in general, I try to have, you know, like friends across like, uh, you know, like a broad range of experience, right? Um, but, you know, it is the case that part of the reason why trans people in media positions gravitate towards each other is because, you know, like we have this common experience and we can talk and we can mm-hmm. kind of like share experiences, share strategies for how to deal with them, vent in a way that, you know, that feels safe. The whole, you know? I'm not, I'm not crazy, right? Yeah. <laughs> this is real. Yeah. Like where you don't feel, <laughs> yeah. you know, the same sense of, you know, like sense of judgment because you know that the other person has experienced, you know, like not exact necessarily exactly the same thing, but something similar, right? And so, and so it's been very interesting to just like jump into this world as an academic and then, you know, and then like form friendships with people who are in public media positions who I just think of as like people that, you know, like I'm fans of and then I become <laughs> friends with them and it's like weird, but it's, you know, but it, at the same time, yeah, you know, there, there is that sort of, I mean, that's one of the things that happens, right? Like, I'm used, I'm still, like, there's still a part of my brain that completely explodes when, like, more than 100 people read my work, you know? What do you think of the label trans writer? I, I'm totally comfortable with it. You know, like, I feel like I don't, from the, just from the perspective of, like, of, of trans issues being the primary um primary focus of my work Mm -hmm. um and also like in terms of you know like that of being trans as a really kind of like just you know just a really strong aspect of my identity like it's not something that I'm I it's not something that I'm uncomfortable about definitely like I kind of feel like and I feel like there are um I've never really felt uncomfortable about about being trans, but when Zine and I were at Cornell, there I went through a period of like just like not wanting to talk about my private life. So yeah, you know, like I I've never felt uncomfortable being trans, but there was definitely a period when I was more private about it. Um, and but at the same time, I still held all of my all of my views when you know kind of like people when I got pushed on it and so we have this friend Jacob Brogan who we talked about earlier who writes for Slate now I once asked him whether he ever suspected that I was trans because I had known him for several years by the time that I publicly disclosed and he was just like you know the only time that I suspected you might be was when you you called Judith Butler out for um for for criticizing trans people who don't identify as queer and and 
and it was really funny because I had for- completely forgotten about <laughs> that incident. But I did like one of the things that I did probably like within the first couple of weeks I was at Cornell was like attend this talk by Judith Butler. <laughs> And just be like, well, you know, just because, you know, just because trans women don't necessarily kind of like follow the model that you want doesn't mean that their identities aren't valid. Right? Yeah, for sure. Um, and yeah, and so that was really, that was kind of a, and, and so like I went through this period at Cornell where I held all of my views, but I didn't actually talk about my own private life. But then... Yeah, so I don't have hesitations about being identified as a trans writer. The only hesitation that I have is that I'm a really, really in- intersectional Yeah, I was <laughs> minority. Say, like, what, what happens to like your like Filipina identity, for instance, or like, my or my yeah. albinism, yeah. or you know, or you know, my proximity. I wouldn't even call it like my proximity to the disability community. You know, like I am you know, I am disabled by certain definitions, which is also weird because mm-hmm. it's it's an invisible disability, you know? Um, and I'm an immigrant, I'm a first generation immigrant, right? Um, I don't know, you know, like, I don't know what to do with that. I'm not sure, I right now I do feel like we are at a moment where it's important for there to be strong trans voices and it's important for people for there to be people who center their work around trans issues and so you know so in that sense I don't feel this like urge to branch out of that or like not necessarily branch out but like this urge to sort of like disavow or sort of like dissociate myself from that term anytime soon yeah like strategically it makes sense for now to to do the work under that label so right, right, and not even strategic. In in a sense, like it's not even strategic. Like, you know, like I just kind of feel like that's what I do, mm-hmm. and I do other things. But the other things that I do um, right now are are backgrounded by mm-hmm. working on translated stuff, and yeah. that's fine. And yeah, and it doesn't mean those things don't exist. Like right. they just exist in different registers. I was wondering, since we were talking about um, your time at Cornell, do you want to talk maybe more broadly about? either the support or lack thereof for LGBT grad students in higher education in general? And yeah. Because like, like I feel like that does and does not relate to like the way that um, LGBT studies, queer theory, um, feminist studies, like sort of now has a niche place in the academy, but of course like the actual experiences of, of graduate <coughs> students and I guess, uh, well, students in general and of faculty um, who identify as queer don't necessarily of course fall in line with, with the way that the institution is maybe like preserving like an office for LGBT studies or a minor or a major. Right. I mean, I kind of feel like the 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 institutionalization and yet like simultaneously the you know, the lack of trendiness of queer theory has been like super fascinating to track, right? Mm-hmm. Like the ways in which I don't know, you know, like I feel like both at an institutional and at an academic level, there needs to be some kind of, you know, like a greater understanding of what queer people contribute, um, not as the sort of, not as a topic, right, but as like a way of 
being, a way of looking at, a way of understanding how we exist, um, both in the world, but also like within the academic settings that we operate in. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think for me, you know, like one of the things, you know, like one of the things that happened to me at Cornell was I ran into, you know, this, you know, really horrible, um, you know, sort of like transphobic harassment situation. And one of the things that I learned coming from that experience is the ways in which trans is so new to people that it's very hard for the institution to to sort of like incorporate what it means to be trans, you know, to be fully trans inclusive, right? That like you can have that, you can include gender identity on a piece of paper. Yeah, and some manifesto or mission statement. But it's but it's actually but when you um, when you actually um, try to enforce these rules, um, you know, like you run into really tricky territory. Um, and and it was really funny because when, you know, like when I was experiencing um, transphobic harassment at Cornell, I couldn't even I didn't really even have a language to describe what I was experiencing until um, this wonderful. Professor Cornell, um, M. Elizabeth Carnes. I don't know if you know her, but she's. Oh yeah, she um, was one of the ho- our house fellows yes. at House Beta House. Yeah, <laughs> she's a statistics professor, but ethics. she. Ethics. She's all over the ethics. Yeah, but she's uh-huh. she's also a JD, and she works oh, on mm-hmm. and she actually works as an advocate, as a victim advocate mm-hmm. in the Cornell system, mm-hmm. completely voluntarily. But one of the things that she said that really, really resonated with me, which I never thought about until she said it, was that my case reminded her a lot of early sexual harassment cases um, where women, cis women, were feeling uncomfortable and in workplaces in a way that incapacitated them, Uh but people couldn't grasp, you know, like what, this meant or like what the effects of mm-hmm. this are until there was a key decision in which in which um you know like a, a ruling stated no you can't think about the situation from the perspective of an average person or like a typical rational human being yes you have to think about the situation from the perspective of a working woman mm-hmm. in this environment mm-hmm. that is dominated especially at the time by men right and so I was just like oh like that was the thing that I didn't understand about my situation was that I was I kept being encouraged to look at it from oh you know like a rational person shouldn't feel unsafe you Mm -hmm. know like an average person you know like this this defies logic right Right. and so (laughs) and and sort of like understanding that oh you know like there isn't enough of an understanding of what mm-hmm. people what trans people have experienced and what trans people you know it, how pe- trans people exist in the world and I think that's something that at an institutional level I'm still trying to sort of um trying to work out especially as you know kind of like we're living at a time when you know like when rape on campus is mm-hmm. such a you know, like is is yeah, and and BuzzFeed has done a ton of reporting yeah. on sexual harassment and rape, um, and to its great credit, 
um, <laughs> to our great credit, our, our great our. credit. Yeah, like it's um, Katie Baker is one of my favorite people in the world. And um, uh, Azeen uh, Gurashi, um, who are both like, who both like exposed all of these. Fellow writers at um, BuzzFeed. Yeah, they're fellow reporters. Katie Baker was the person who, who um, was in contact with the, with, um, the woman from Stanford who oh, wrote, really? the oh, yeah, that wrote the letter, family. and oh, she's yeah. you know Mark like Arnold. she's been working on rape and sexual harassment for a really long time, and um, uh, Azim Gorashi is on our um, is on our science team, mm-hmm. and she recently published. Um, she's been publishing um, a bunch of articles on sexual harassment cases in science. So, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, you know, slowly but surely. But yeah, um, you know, but seeing that and sort of like coming to an understanding of, oh, um, you know, like it took this long for people to sort of like come to even begin to come to terms mm-hmm. with what's going on in these institutions. Then how long is it going to take for people, you know, for the experiences of trans people to be you know, to be fully kind of like reckoned with and understood? We'll see. Yeah, there must be something incredibly <laughs> um, like frustrating about that to know that like of course you're on the sort of front lines of this but knowing that it may take so long for that type of change to happen like you're you're a part of it it's important work but obviously it also takes a personal toll that is something that you're going through and also like what what's actually really funny about it is that as much as like at the time that it was happening people were very much like oh like you write for places you know people in the media and therefore you have a distinct advantage Mm. But actually, like it was a huge, it's a huge disadvantage because, like, really? because, like every, because it's a conflict of interest. Like, a, it's a conflict of interest. Nobody can, at BuzzFeed can write about this. Mm-hmm. It's a conflict of interest, and also, and also, um, I, it's very, in our culture, it's very hard to be successful and also victimized. You know, mm-hmm. like it's very hard to maintain both of those positions. It's very hard for people to understand that I can simultaneously have experienced like the worst type of transphobic harassment and at the same time happen to be one of the few people who uses work as an ingrained coping mechanism. And so I've been able to sort of like come out of that experience and be able to, you know, whatever, like achieve a certain type of external success, right? Mm -hmm. And I think and so, yeah, you know, so that's also something, you know, something that that exists, right, is is the ways in which we want to put people in the specific roles in our head mm-hmm. and um, and that there has to be the sort of like your life has to fall apart, right, in order for your victimization to be valid. Um, yeah, yeah. It's, I, I used to always say... Um, like America loves a six racks of riches story. Right. You know, and so you could have done the most abominable things in your past as long as you became better afterwards. Right. But we don't want to hear about it when you're at the bottom. We actually want to hear about it after you've succeeded and you've like gotten some level of, you know, success or closure after. Right. I mean, it's very right. hard for people to respect you or accept your truth as truth while you're actually, when you need it the most. Right. Right. But, but you can write a book about it afterwards. Absolutely. Or, you know, you can talk about it and, and maybe they'll... Or, like, also as Meredith is sort of suggesting, like, your success can work against you because how could you possibly, 
be victimized at that moment, right? It's right, like, right, just, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, or, you know, or it can be used to sort of, like, you know, to sort of, to sort of say things like, you know, like, why are you complaining when there are all of these other people who are suffering more? And I think, you know, like, I think what's really important about my story is is just to sort of, like, reiterate that, you know, that, like, a lot of times, like, trans people are deemed important when we're dead, when it's mm-hmm. too late, right? You know, like, in and it's really important for us to improve conditions for trans people when we actually are able to still, you know, sort of, like, continue and we're still able to sort of, like, cope and and that we're alive to to experience the effects of people's attempts to improve our lives, you know what I mean? And that one doesn't have to necessarily, you know, like, I mean, this is part of my frustration around, um, you know, like, around this whole question of, like, Meredith, like, why aren't you focusing on, you know, like, why aren't you focusing on the many trans people who, um, you know, like, who have died or who are victims of violence? because for me, it's because for me, like first of all, you know, like we have a breaking news team mm-hmm. that does report on those issues. I'm not the only person in the company who works on trans issues, but also secondly, like you know, like I think that it's equally important to to talk about trans homelessness, right? To mm-hmm. talk about, you know, to talk about these types of you know these types of questions around um, you know like around trans experiences on campus um and yet at the same time like there's this sort of like really weird way in which I have to approach a trans you know they harass like if I was approached with a trans harassment story I actually have to approach it more carefully because I have a public profile as somebody who has experienced you know like there's still this sort of perception that you can't be objective if you okay I understand you know, if you have proximity to the experience of of your subject, not really accounting for the fact that it's not an objective perspective to never have had any proximity yeah. to your subject's experience. Like, that is also a loaded and subjective perspective. I was say, right? like, there was that one, I think, image that went viral last year. I think it was like the U.S. Senate committee or something that was on like birth control, female birth right. control or something oh. like that. And it was all like old white men. And right. it's like, oh, because they're the only ones that could really speak to it. Right. Like, right. Um, right. Or, you know, or just sort of like all of these, you know, men profiling female celebrities oh God, and like just the like recent Margaret Robbie yeah Margaret Robbie stuff that looks so painful yeah. so yeah. painful yeah you know so it's we we all have perspectives and it's not none of it is neutral but you know but we have long-standing journalistic conventions that that in some ways actually lag behind academic conventions if that can be believed right <laughs> <laughs> you know like I feel like I feel like neutrality has been you know has been questioned actually more in humanities academia since like the 80s or something right then that and i think you know sort of like journalism is still holding on to it um and that can possibly be like a you know like if if I were to sort of like move a little bit further away from trans specific stuff like that's definitely that's an area that I'm definitely really interested in probing is the sort of concept of journalistic neutrality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
I was also wondering if, if you wanted to talk uh, um, more generally about um, other aspects of your life story. Usually, like at the beginning, we ask like, "Oh, so where are you from?" and those right. things. And we sort of like jumped in right into the, to the meat of the things. But I was sort of wondering if you could talk about like um, maybe like your earlier academic inclinations to choosing comparative literature, for example, mm-hmm. as as a focus. And oh my god! Uh, so actually, yeah, also my my from, meandering yeah. road. <laughs> I know. So I actually met Meredith um, at Cornell. Specifically, uh, in in a class, and there was this one session on uh, the Filipino writer Jose Rizal, and that I think that Walter Professor Walter Cohen asked you right. to come in at the time because you're working on Rizal. Yeah, um, yeah, I was working on Filipino literature as a complete student, which I wasn't planning to work on when I started complete. I wanted to work on francophone literature um and then um you know just because i'm just like i i don't want to be a filipino person working on filipino literature Mm. and then um and then my third year wikipedia of all places had this (laughs) fellowship um like a humanities fellowship Mm. i thought you were Um, gonna say you quoted them in your no 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 no. No, they had this they had this fellowship (laughs) to like study the development of like indigenous languages in various places wow. and so and you know and I just I was just like oh like this seems cool so then I did that for a summer and because I did it for a summer I became aware of how kind of like underrepresented um Filipino literature is in the academy so I was just like okay like nobody's doing this so I you know like I should actually um start working on it so that's that's how Zine and I um met um and then oh like i like this sort of like reverse chronological thing yeah, it's, it's like it's um, working backward and some I of this know. i know because of like articles that you've written about your child but anyway like this is yeah, interesting to get so, from you <laughs> um like harold i don't know if you know that harold pinter play betrayal but it's like structured backwards mm. so i'm thinking of course like i have a literary reference so then <laughs> Before, so basically, like, I was not planning to do a complete PhD when I started at Cornell. I was in the MFA fiction program. And then I just started taking PhD classes, um, you know, like, essentially as, you know, like, all, all of my peers, not all of them, but a lot of my peers were like, let me take this sort of, like, the, the fiction-centric, you know classes and then you know and of course me I was just like oh you know like I love theory when I was in undergrad <laughs> let me take some theory classes and so I started taking them um and then yeah and um and started becoming more interested and fascinated with the academic side of the field and um and I took this like class on modernity with Natalie Melas mm, who's yeah. brilliant um and so like I was feeling really inspired so I was just like oh like let me I, I actually just like really applied on a whim. I only applied to Cornell because I still had MFA funding, you know, like mm-hmm. I still had third year, you know, like we can lecture on our third year. And then, yeah, like, and then just like in, in this like really fluky way, they accepted me. Um, and then before that, I actually did a visual art MFA. Um, at California College of the Arts, and um, because and in undergrad at Harvard, I I consistently did both. I did um, both literature and visual art, and so um, and when I graduated, I was just like, oh, you know, like I want to explore what it's like to be an artist. So um, yeah, um, and and what did you find from being an artist? I. 
I actually, it's weird because I don't think that I would have ever done a fiction MFA if I hadn't done a visual art MFA. That's interesting. And yeah, like I basically like when I was an undergrad, I was planning to, I was planning, I was very close to actually just doing a PhD straight from, uh-huh. or like taking a year off and doing it straight from undergrad. But I think what happened was I wanted to take a break from literature and I was taking photographs at the time. And then this happens to me. I'm just like, oh, I'm just <laughs> gonna apply. And then it's just like, oh, like you've been accepted. And then, yeah, and then, um, yeah. And then, so then that happened. And basically, like, I took this online class after, because I moved to New York and I didn't have a job. And I also didn't have a studio. So then I was just like, oh, I need a creative outlet. So like, why don't I write a couple of short stories? So I was taking this online class and the the professor who I still have not met in person was just like, oh, like these stories are good. Like you should submit them to this writer's conference. Uh-huh. So I submitted it to this writer's conference as directed um, because I follow orders. <laughs> and, then, and then I went as a scholarship student to this writer's conference and like the, the professor there was just like, oh, you need to go, you know, like you need, this needs to be a novel. So you wow. need to like go to an MFA program. And I was just like, but I've already done an MFA program. And then she was just like, oh, it doesn't matter. Just like apply. So then I applied to MFA programs and got accepted to Cornell. So basically that's been kind of, as somebody who does not come from, you know, a privileged background, Mm -hmm. you know, postgraduate education is actually like one of the routes that people from my background can take. Like we can get scholarships. We're much more supported, you know, like in media, you can't, you know, like a starting salary as an intern or a fellow um, at places like the New Yorker, even BuzzFeed is just like, prohibitive you know Mm -hmm. like it's very difficult Mm -hmm. to live on that income unless you have parental support um so yeah you know so I did that and then before that um I lived in the Philippines until oh well I was an undergraduate at Harvard and then before that I um I lived in the Philippines in the uh, rural part of the Philippines until I was 15 and then we immigrated to California um, so your family, and, or your your immediate family came, or yeah, okay. yeah, my immediate family came, and then I had a stint as a child star. Oh, yes, that was this part in of the Philippines the for like two what? years. You that I was like, <laughs> yeah, like I was, I was like the kid in one of the top rated sitcoms. How in come the Philippines. that's not in your Buzzfeed? <laughs> <laughs> Former child star. I'm a little upset. I, I thought I was doing my job well. And there so I kind of think. I mean, I think those are the. I think those are the highlights. <laughs> <laughs> and oh yeah and I'm um and I was like the only blonde kid for miles around mm-hmm. and my grandfather was a politician so he used to like set me in like the middle <laughs> of like remote districts of you know like his mm-hmm. of his province and then people would come out and just be like there's a blonde person we've never seen a blonde person before mm-hmm. and so they would come out and then he would give like his speech after all of these people came out because so I aided my my grandfather's political career. That? 
<laughs> Meredith, come sit on this. Come sit on this table. Yeah, no. that could be. That would be the next Facebook Live video. Actually, that's actually an interesting Facebook Live idea. To like go like the next time I'm in the mm-hmm. Philippines, mm-hmm. I'll just like sit at a and just watch what happens. And just like watch what happens. Yeah. You know, we can do I can pitch that to Buzzfeed Philippines. Yeah. <laughs> I support this. I support this fully. This is exciting. I love how one idea led to the next and led to the next. Um it's like a random side note, but I, I'm mentoring some high school and undergrad students now and they're always trying to figure out how do you know what you want to do in life? Where do you want to go? And like, you just, there are no right answers. You keep trying to find a right answer and there is no right answer. Yeah. And, it, and it's interesting just because even though I've meandered mm-hmm. through my career, I do feel like, Hey, you know, like I've always, you know, I've always pretty much like landed on my feet, mm-hmm. but also B, I feel like I really you know, like in every sort of like position that I've been in, you know, th- those unique aspects of my experience have been really useful and been, you know, here at BuzzFeed, you know, like I take my own photographs for a lot of my stories. Mm-hmm. I, you know, like I, you know, I bring in perspectives, you know, like I translate a lot of stuff, not a lot of stuff. Occasionally I translate stuff. From you know because like there's always like weird social media news from the Philippines and mm-hmm. just like can you like this <laughs> can you like tell me what's going on in this speech? They walk um, up to you really nicely, Meredith. Yeah, no, they usually approach me gingerly on Slack and just be like, "Is that okay?" <laughs> and they're just like, "Okay, like as long as you bring me a donut tomorrow, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> like, I'll translate this for you." How to negotiate? <laughs> you must negotiate. <laughs> Negotiation is important. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. No, definitely. In life, in general. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I guess one thing that um, I also, because as you said, like you are, are so incredibly inter- intersectional, but uh, the strangeness of growing up as like the um, uh, the only blonde kid in the Philippines is like a, I feel like a reoccurring topic that we've had on our podcast is that we often talk about colorism within different mm-hmm. racial categories. Right. And then like, when we, but of course we I feel like we haven't really rec- like where does albinism fit into that? Of course. Or like what, yeah. what have you observed? And like, of course, we've seen like, I think that I mean, I've read quite a lot about the way that um, it ends up being fetishized and vilified, and right. people are become really endangered. But I was wondering, yeah, what your what your thoughts are on? Like, I mean, I think how- it's it's a very compl- you know, albinism is a super complicated phenomenon. The thing that I observe is that, in a way, like I'm sort of a product of like a weirdly positive product of colonialism because I think in the Philippines in the Philippines like light skin is definitely valued mm-hmm. um and uh I'm not sure what I grew up in a very small town and my family was very protective of me so I don't know what it's like for other people mm-hmm. but I grew up in a town of 500 people and like if anybody were to say anything negative about me in that town, you know, like my grandmother would have raised hell. Mm -hmm. So I grew up with a very, very strong, solid sense of self-worth, which I think is something that a lot of people in minority positions struggle with. And so one of the things that I've noticed and, and one of the things that people have given me feedback about is is the way in which despite my minority positions like I don't 
convey sort of like disempowered body language. Mm. And I think that actually in certain ways contributes to my white passing mm. because because I'm often, I am very often read as not albino. Like I'm just read as white. Mm-hmm. And I think, and I think that there's a certain just you know purely observationally and like being having seen around having seen other albino people that's one of the things that you know like people people talk about getting bullied you know like if you get bullied in school that leaves a mark right like i didn't get bullied in school uh-huh. um and so i've never i don't know you know like there's there's, there's this really weird way in which my albinism has been has you know like definitely contributed to me being white passing and the other thing that I've really really you know that the essay that I haven't really written Mm -hmm. is the essay about me having low vision me having you know like me having neurological issues because of my albinism Mm -hmm. right but like how what is that disadvantage compared to being perceived as white mm. in a racist American <laughs> society, <laughs> right? Like, how do you weigh those two? You know, like those two modes of existence. Is and why something... would you have to? I would imagine that you would have, in in the same way that you get critiqued a lot. I imagine there are people who want to compare them, and in a right. way, should they be compared? Well, but I mean, it's it's definitely, I mean, it's occurred to me as a theoretical, yeah. right? Like, I've definitely been like, okay, like, you know, it's very hard to not be yourself, right? You're just always, because mm-hmm. I'm, I'm just like, okay, like, I am who I am. So, like, I'm, you know, but at the same time, it's just like, okay, like, if you were Filipino, like, if you looked like your siblings, would you be as successful as you are today, and yeah. that's something that's something that I think about. You know, like it's something that, you know, like what are the factors? And it's you know, like it's obviously like an unanswerable question, mm-hmm. but it's undoubtedly the case that being white passing has advantaged me. And like that's not something that I will, you know, that that I would deny. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet at the same time, you know, and yet at the same time passing in all the ways that I do not just mm-hmm. as white but also like cisgender native born American is also all can also be like a really really lonely position to be in right because on the one hand on the one hand I feel like it's really vital for me to support and and also just kind of like refuse you know, people who want to deny the effects, the real effects of racism in America. And yet at the same time, you know, like psychologically it hurts when I'm with my family and people think that I'm like the visitor, right? (laughs) Or, you know, um, yeah, like just, you know, just all of these experiences happen. Um, There are people out there. I just want to make sure. Sure. I don't think, I don't think that they're, it doesn't look like they're trying to come into the room, right? Um, yeah. No, okay. no, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> That's just what um, Buzzfeed's like. Right. Friday um, nights, party. I know. 
so yeah, um, basically, so basically much- like super, super complicated. Yeah, which is great because <laughs> well, it's really funny just because Sadie Jones, um, our executive editor, one of our basically like my boss's boss, uh, our executive editor for culture, um, was just like there was one point when he said something to me that was so funny what he was just like yeah you know like Meredith you know definitely you know like you're always welcome to write personal essays for us but you know like you shouldn't feel pressured to do it you know because like you don't want to like cannibalize your own experience like it's a fixed (laughs) you know like it's a fixed resource like I don't think he used fixed Uh, resource but I kind of (laughs) but but when he said cannibalize your own experience all of a sudden like I saw myself I saw my like experience as like a fossil fuel you know where it's just like (laughs) but it's just you know but for me it's just like I could write I could talk and write about my experience from here until kingdom come and I still would have things to write about just because of the fact that like after the trans stuff like there's just all of this there's just like all of this other stuff you know that I can that I can and I will and hopefully be able to write about in the future so Liz you have something you want to No, I just I'm so in awe it's so powerful and I guess I'm not surprised, but I'm finding so many points of similarity Mm -hmm. and experience. Um, I may not be trans, but I know what it's like to be like a minority. Um, And one of the things I was thinking about when you were asking about would I be successful as my as my siblings? And one of the things I'm from Mississippi. Can you tell? Mm hmm. Can right. You, no, can no you, I can. I cannot tell. tell. And so I grew up there, and I never had an accent, and I've always spoken like this. And on the one hand, people say I, I talk like a white person. I got ostracized. Um, I was quiet, so people thought I was stuck up. Right. And people would make fun of my voice, say I was like, oh, you sound like a little mouse, so I would never talk. But I've also recognized that at the same time, people in power responded to me differently as a right. black woman because I it's like I sound more accepting I right. sound like I sound I don't look I don't sound threatening right I sound intelligent and I have often wondered what would have been what would I have easily been accepted into I went to Penn for undergrad would I right. have easily been accepted in my like physics classes or Ivy League spaces if I had a southern accent right and I know what people say about these accents and I didn't ask for it but I know it's there, and I know that's a privilege that I have. It's right. kind of like this. So there's there's a lot of points of like similarity and things that we think about and things that we've done, and it's just really, I guess, I guess, powerful to say that you can relate to someone even though you don't have the exact right. experiences, and you can really draw from that. Oh, and final thing, I know we mentioned mm-hmm. it before, but I think it might be important for people who listen to the podcast who maybe have a, I don't know how do you relate and so as I'm used to thinking about minorities as black I mean so my identifiers would be as a black um, um, southern American um, and as a cis woman and I'm listening to you and I'm thinking every time I hear about trans I'm thinking about all the things I've ever heard people say with the Mm -hmm. black white dynamic and how um, and I find myself in a different perspective where I'm not a part of this group. And so what is, what do I do then? Right. I need to listen. I need to stop. And then I've, I have this sense of terror almost because now I'm thinking, what do I say? And then I know like, well, whenever a white person comes up to me and says, well, what do I say? I'm like, well, you just say hello. You know, you, 
Right. So I'm having all these thoughts going around and thinking about what I say and I don't want to ask the wrong question. And so I'm really grateful for people like you who write about it so I can actually read about it because I also know what that's like to have to answer all these questions all the time. Right. It's like verbal abuse and it's just... I don't know. Thank you for your work. Oh, <laughs> it's also you. really fun to, to listen, but I learned so much and I think it helped me understand things. It helps me understand. It also makes me ashamed sometimes in the sense that I thought I was so woke. I thought that I knew what it was like to be a minority and I found myself doing the same things to another group. Right. Um, and just like, what is that like when you're like, you're a minority here, but now you're like a majority, like now you have some sort of power because I am cis and I am heterosexual. And so how does that, like, not that, yeah, like right. in general, I'm thinking about like all the aspects. Um, we haven't really talked about sexuality, um, but it's I just, interesting. I just don't think anybody can be woke enough. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I kind of, I just sort of feel like <laughs> we live in, you know, like we live in a racist transphobic society right you know and i and i think that you know like for me as hard as it is you know to sort of you know to just like acknowledge the various ways in mm-hmm. which i'm racist right and the various ways mm-hmm. actually in which i'm also like internally transphobic mm-hmm. you know like i i do feel like it it it's just like vital to acknowledge that it's so humbling yeah, and it's vital to sort of like mm-hmm. live with that discomfort and live with that sort of um, sense of um, just that, you know, like that sense of it's like that sense of danger mm-hmm. is also is also a place where it's possible to like sit and be able to I don't know like be able to then query and be able to sort of Mm -hmm. like live in that space Mm -hmm. of discomfort because Because I because I experienced that Mm -hmm. with especially with you know with the complications of you know anti-blackness in our Mm -hmm. culture um and yeah and just sort of and all of these like cultural forces and you know, I kind of and like bridging generations and mm-hmm. oh my Ageism, god, you know, oh my god, like the 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 sort of like trigger warning divide, yes, <laughs> the trigger yeah. warning generational divide. It just always makes um, me ask, how do I make sure that my actions line up my words? Like, how do I right. make sure that I'm not just saying, oh, I understand you, but I'm actually doing something that's hurtful? Um, yeah, and, right. and I think that, like I think feel like now there's this huge push to keep and you see this phrase popping up a, up a line that you know ally is not a noun it's a verb but perhaps also like woke also is a verb not a noun it's a process of, of continual awakening right and I'd say that what I really like your point about living in this type of discomfort is that I think it's so important for us to acknowledge because I think when people first enter um, spaces talking about power social justice people you really want to be the good one. And so like often yeah. what we see is like this pursuit of this other type of ideological purity. Right, that right. Despite the complications that we're, that we're all enmeshed in as if we can't, as if somehow we can ourselves be outside of this incredibly 
uh, incredibly racist, sexist um, society um, is in itself pr problematic. And I think that one way that at very early stages, like you see that type of policing happening and people are just getting into that type of space is like call out culture being like very like, you know, with us or against us, exile style, um, exile style tactics. Right. And it's like a way of people exercising and trying to uh, exercising like their ideas and ethics. And it's interesting because like I, a couple months ago, I was put, um, invited into this one particular online community for people of color that was actually geared for mostly like teens. Uh -huh. And so it's really interesting for me to see like, and, and at the same time, around the same time, I was also initiated into, uh, Meredith is also a, a part of this group, um, this academic group for women of color. Right. And so these are like women who are like graduate school, uh, assistant professors, full professors, much in a different space. And it's so striking to me that um, even as we they talk, these two different spaces talk about different uh, the same issues they do it in very different ways because you can see that for the younger group like it's really interesting to see them working out um, a lot of the complications um, from this grassroots level but also there seems to be a lot of the calling out going on um, whereas like, I've noticed in like the older group like a lot of people are exhausted and like it's like we have to support like there's a greater sense of solidarity like it might also have to do other dynamics but it's very interesting to me I think to see how we evolve as people who are committed to social justice and what our practice looks like at different stages of our life right and right our, and our relations to one another mm -hmm. right and also kind of like the desire to I mean I, I sense that as kind of like a desire for solutions that are that are kind of you know like I, it's a certain kind of idealism, mm -hmm. you know, to be able to think that, like, yes, like, we, you can kind of, like, figure out exactly what is, you know, like, right and mm -hmm. what is wrong. And I think it takes several cycles mm -hmm. <laughs> of mm -hmm. figuring out that there is really, I mean, that it's, that it's very, very complicated yeah. to be able to sort of, like, live with, you know, to be able to sort of exist in that indeterminate space, mm -hmm. you know, so... I just think it's important to point out, especially um, for our listeners who may be academics, because I think it's very true that people, it's very easy to think, I know this one thing very well, therefore that gives me the foundation to automatically know something else right. extremely well, and that's actually not true. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, you, that still, knowing one thing really, really well means you know that one thing really right. well, and you still have to start from the bottom and understand they're the basis of the, the second thing you're trying to learn and build up. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's I, uncomfortable and it's humbling, but it's exciting. And I think you understand more and I have more empathy now. For, yeah. Yeah. I was thinking of a particular example. I don't know if we want to get into it, but um, around the time when you came out at Cornell, like I feel like that was also when a lot of the trigger warning discussion, but also like um, the use of the, the T word was uh, right. came out quite a bit. And I had, a, I had to have a lot of arguments with uh, friends who is, were- Is the T word offensive? Is that yeah? Okay, I, I, go ahead. Not no. transgender. Okay, yeah. okay. That's yeah. <laughs> so, so I just wanted. I just was curious whether you meant trans or you're literally saying T word because there's something else. Uh, yes. Yeah. Okay, that's yeah. all yeah. I want to know. <laughs> Sorry, um, I wasn't sure. I, I wasn't kind of, familiar with the story. You there's don't have a to there's see it. there's a T version of the N there's word. No, yeah. Not not they're not the equivalent. Street. Yeah. They're not equivalent. Yeah. But, yeah. Okay. But I feel like I, it was funny because I was seeing a lot of um cis cis people, especially like cis gay or even sometimes even just straight cis straight people who were saying. I can use that word because cis, cis gay people can do, use it. Like right. that, was, that was the excuse I was coming. I was like, yeah, but oh. those aren't the actual trans people themselves talking right. about it. And like, I, I yeah. Yeah. I, I usually try to avoid arguing on social media, but that was one of the few times that I, mm -hmm. I, I ended up getting to it. 
And it's interesting how people but, don't like being policed because, again, they feel like I'm a part of this minority community, therefore I have permission to make up, well, not to make up, but to use this, another yeah. thing from another community, and that doesn't Yeah, and it's and, and I feel like in a lot of situations, the thing that, I, that I'm... The thing that happens is, is like, usually what happens is, like, one person, one person from the community would think that it's acceptable mm-hmm. to you to do something mm-hmm. or use something. Mm-hmm. I mean, Caitlyn Jenner is a good example of this, mm-hmm. you know, like, Caitlyn Jenner is comfortable with people using her dead name. Caitlyn Jenner, at a certain point, was, respo- you know, was, was, um, you know, was comfortable using he pronouns to refer to her and i think what's really difficult is like you is that trans people are not expressing uh you know single case use principle like trans people are expressing like what are the norms Mm -hmm. you know like what are the defaults that we should be operating under and the consistent thing is that cis people want the defaults to be what's comfortable for them mm-hmm. <laughs> and trans people want the defaults to be what you know to to be something that requires effort on the part of cis people yes and cis people have about. a really hard yeah. time and you end up having arguments <laughs> with friends like oh i don't want to use they as a singular pronoun right or, they as a know, pronoun. Like, mm-hmm. it's like that's it's like it takes you so little of your time to be able to like just try to work do that you know yeah right 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 but you know it's but i i i'm I'm in a privileged position of being paid to <laughs> to be able to sort of hash these issues out and be part of that cultural conversation. But it is so true. If people go, oh, it's so confusing. There are four choices. I mean, I'm making that number up. There may be more or less. Right. But And they go, I can't decide. Therefore, let me just call you whatever I felt like calling you. Which is the default. And it's... As, as uh, the bigoted, whatever, right. pre-existing. Like, how... Uh, yeah. 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 No, I mean, it, it's definitely... It's frustrating... But, um, and, and yeah, and people don't want you to be complicated, you know, like people, Mm -hmm. people have a really, really hard time with the fact that I'm both a post-transition, like post-medical transition, Mm -hmm. trans woman, and also non-binary identified, Mm -hmm. you know, like Mm -hmm. that's very hard for people. Like as soon as like you don't fall into somebody's like pre-existing category, like it's possible for you to have medically transitioned and at the same time not believe in a binary gender system mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. like those two things are not exclusive but i think but i think that people really really you know just they really want kind of like this stability mm-hmm. that when you can't offer it to them they blame you and project yeah, yeah. You know, I, like reject animosity i can't help but think you. like the, the way it's phrased is like make gender great again <laughs> oh, sorry i couldn't i couldn't help it no no but i am recalling this one time i was getting my hair braided um uh-huh. it's a multi-hour long process and uh random things were happening and then i think she 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 started talking. She said, like, oh, oh that, did you hear about that trans stuff happening? And then she said, I think I told you about this one sign. And then she kept talking. And then I, you know, I had to make a decision. She's doing my hair. I can't. <laughs> she she, she needs to finish. She me. needs to finish this. But at the same time, I thought, oh, but that's not really. Oh. So I went, well, you know, 
it's fluid. There's gender and there's sexuality. They are not the same thing. These things are fluid. So I, I kept trying to like, well, here, maybe no one's ever as explained this to you. <laughs> as my hair, as I have the possibility of walking out with like a fro on one side and, you know, like some like really long braids. But, but I have also found, and so one of the things I struggle with, and then that's the humbling part is, um, how do I also learn to have the language? Right. I'm also, and then, so one, you have the actual community talking about the language. And then it's like, now how do I learn, how, do, how what language do I learn? Which language do I keep? And which, which language is fluid? Which right. is like, oh, I have that one friend who's comfortable. That doesn't mean everyone's comfortable. Don't repeat right. that. Right. And then when I talk to other people who are like saying these things, then what do I say to them right. to help them understand who may have never even considered this? There's so many layers. But we could talk forever and ever. <laughs> right. We really could. Um, we should probably start wrapping it up, I guess. I think we should wrap up. But Zion and I have never really learned how to wrap up. We just kind of say awkward things. Um, what's your do you th- listen to another round? We do. I love another round. I was secretly hoping I would like walk through the halls and be like, yeah, I don't, I, you know, like having vacation for yes. cold air, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. We're heartbroken. Um, although, although they're continuing mm-hmm. the podcast. I don't think, I don't think Tracy has been here this week, so she might be on vacation, unfortunately. Yeah. But the next time you're here, I'll make sure to. Oh, okay. Well, could you, could you show, that. I will come back soon yeah. if you want me to. Maybe you could yeah. show, like, the general area of the office. Oh, no, no, no. no. Like, they, like, Tracy sits right behind me. Oh, so you can, you can look at that space? Ah! <laughs> Tracy sits right behind We can take a photo of the empty chair. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm a Um, fan, and I love podcasting, and I love this space. I love the idea that you can make your own, you can have your voice heard, and it just makes an opportunity for different communities that may not have had a voice in mainstream to sort of, I, there's a population of people who want to be represented and heard, and you can now do that, and I feel like this is a great age to be doing that. So yeah, so they usually and, end with some sort of like quick game or like activity or something like, or like, you know, and truth used, or dare. Or, I used to ask people, um, like, what was your favorite place on campus? Like, but we've been, uh-huh. that's because we were interviewing grad students. So I don't know, um, like currently in school. Yeah. Um, I can talk about, I mean, do I have a favorite place at Cornell? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wait you're screaming i'm just like no i'm just i'm just like oh you know like agony what, or you're yeah, squealing like, you're either screaming or squealing i was squealing i um i love the garden behind 80 white house oh I yeah do, that is i do really nice. love it a lot both actually like both in winter and in summer or like in all of the seasons you know i just feel like that has been the the garden behind 80 white house has been kind of like a marker for me of the seasons mm. over the years you know like it's a it's a space that i i think it's partially because like it's in the it's in the middle of campus but it's also kind of tucked away yeah, yeah. right so like when i have these experiences where i need to like think or like <laughs> i need to like gather myself that's usually where I go they've renovated so. it I have to say like they cut you know, if you remember there's a used to be this big beautiful tree they cut it down. oh no oh no okay sorry. Like, don't tell sorry, me sorry sorry now she's screaming it's still, it's still the scene so in my is memory. there a place in New York City that you that's comparable to that for you gives you the same feeling oh that's a good question huh thank you for saying that I appreciate that yeah no no I mean <laughs> it's, it's, it's a really questions at all I mean I guess to be honest like it's I have not 
really found that in New York mm. yet. And so maybe that's exactly what I need to be looking for, mm. you know, because it is, you know, because it's very hard to, I mean, I've, I've lived here before, but, you know, but I moved back to New York for my BuzzFeed job. And so, like, I feel like I've been so focused on adjusting at work. Mm-hmm that I haven't had time to really like explore the city and mm. sort of like find mm. those spaces that you know that would give me that same kind of and I you know it's just like Ithaca's Ithaca like the yes. big advantage of Ithaca is that you can contemplate mm-hmm. <laughs> not much else to do so <laughs> yeah. you can contemplate yeah. well thanks so much Meredith this has been a long time in the making yay um, like I feel like that start thinking of guests like your name came up with that like you just had left cornell at that point so we're like right. oh how will we do this so it's fantastic but we fun. made it happen yeah, right and then i was like oh we can go and i i drove up this morning actually okay. so, and also i love the city awesome. All the things I love. this has been phd i'm zanyao Thanks for listening. Follow, like us, all the type of good stuff on PhD This Podcast. I always say C like they can see.